Welcome to Mile High Magazine. Mile High Magazine takes a look at the issues and people shaping events in Colorado. Presented by the Public Affairs Department of Bonneville, Denver. Here's your host, Murphy Houston. And welcome in another edition of Mile High Magazine. And I am Murphy Houston. Hope you're having a great day. Very special guest we have today for you to find some really valuable information about what's going on with young people, especially the homelessness here in Denver. Maybe you weren't even aware of that. What a big issue it is. I have Derek Kirkendall, Executive Director of Providence Network, here with us. And Derek, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me, Murphy. Well, this is great. And you're, and you're a native. We were just talking off the air here a little bit, and you've been around for your yeah. family four generations? Yes, yes. Four generations. goes way back to when my grandparents' um, parents settled here in Colorado. Yeah. And you're from, like, Louisville area? Louisville area, Boulder. Yeah. Oh, you're lucky. Well, we, oh, the rest <laughs> of us that have moved here, I've been here 32 years. I feel like I should be a native <laughs> based on what's going on now. Yeah. But it's just a, such a great place to be. And... My cousin, I'll mention this, Karen Houston, has worked with Providence Network for a long time. So I kind of know what you guys have been doing through her and the story she tells. But let's talk a bit about Providence Network. There's probably a lot of people listening now that don't know what you're all about. So explain that. Well, thanks for having me. We we have been kind of a small, tight-knit group um, over the years, but are growing and kind of going through some transition right now as an organization. We started... 30 years ago, when a few uh, successful businessmen from the suburbs befriended a street pastor named Andy Cannon and said, uh, we want to get involved in the inner city and we want to help out. Um, We're men of faith and we want to play out our faith in a tangible way. What do you need? And he said, a home. And so pretty soon after that conversation, they purchased a mansion in Capitol Hill and uh, Andy Cannon, the, the, the pastor, filled it with homeless people from Colfax. Interesting. So how's it evolved to, now it's mainly young people though, right? Well, And explain young people. I'm sure there's definitions of that. Sure. So uh, we have five homes in the city of Denver. And what we do is what we call transformational housing. And it's this idea that uh, in order to really heal from homelessness, you need about two years uh, of holistic services. But part of what sets us apart in the city is our model. And that model is that our staff live in the homes with the residents. So it's a very relational, 24-7, incarnational, 24-7 mentoring type approach. So our staff are, are living next to people that are coming out of addictions coming out of prostitution, uh, healing from domestic violence, and really living life together in a home, much like a family would. So how did you determine it would take, you mentioned, two years to evolve to a a normal lifestyle from what they've had? Why two years? Why not five years? Well, I don't know there's anything magic about two years, but it tends to be longer than most transitional programs. Uh, We believe that when somebody makes a decision uh, to change, that they really need to go through two full years of that sort of accountability and motivation to change before they're really going to be able to live independently uh, out in the world with many of the temptations that have uh, dragged our folks down in the past. So let's talk about the problem of youth homelessness here in Denver. Mm. It's, and we were talking earlier about the fact that 
you have a tendency to see it on the late night news and it's usually negative. Yes. And it seems to be growing. Yes. And I know it's way different than that because of my connection through my cousin. And talk more about the situation here in Denver. Well, about three years ago, as an organization, we decided we have a unique offering to the city. The way we approach homelessness, uh, the way we help overcome it is unique. And, and we felt like we were being called to grow. And so about that time, we started looking around and, and saw that the, the homeless youth population seemed to be growing around us in Denver. And when I talk about youth, I'm talking about uh, 18 to 25-year-olds. Certainly there are kids younger than 18 on the streets, uh, but the, the, the age group that we're trying to focus on is that 18 to 25. And about that same time, um, we made friends with another local organization called Dry Bones. And what they do is homeless street youth uh, outreach. And so they walk the streets of Denver every day and they build trust and they make friendships with homeless youth. And they were saying, you know, we really need a home for these kids that is designed to meet their specific needs. And so we started a partnership at that point and um, are, are now getting ready uh, any week now to open up our fifth property called Silver Lining House. Uh, on Broadway in downtown Denver. Well, I had a chance to go to the uh, open house for that. And it's funny, like I said, I've lived here a long time and I've been on Broadway. I never really recognized that magnificent property there. Yeah. Talk a little about the history. It's right there at 4th and Broadway. 4th and Broadway, it it, kind of sticks out because it's this beautiful red brick home on Broadway, which is surrounded by commercial uh, properties. And so we restored it and are going to be able to house up to 16 male and female homeless youth along with up to four staff members um, once once we get all moved in over the next few weeks here. And how do you determine what youth make the cut, so to speak, to get in? Because yeah. in? there's so many. Yeah. Well, so the latest projections we've seen is there's probably 1,200 homeless youth uh, on the streets. There's an official count once a year called the point in time survey. And that's when uh, volunteers um, from the Metro Denver housing initiative go out on a evening in January and they actually physically count every homeless person in the city. The problem is they're not sure that they're getting access to all those homeless people. It's a point in time survey. And so the last time that was done, there was about 400 kids that were identified. But our partners from Drybone say that is woefully low. Really? Yes. They believe it's more like 1,200. That's how many they have in their database. And so, yeah, when we're serving 16, it's a drop in the bucket. However, we're also looking for kind of a specific profile. Um, this is a transitional program, and so it's going to take a lot of uh, motivation, internal motivation. We're not taking kids that are being paroled to us. It's not a halfway house. Uh, we're not taking kids from drug court. These are kids that are choosing for themselves to enter an accountable program uh, that they're going to work on their own. And so 
to find that kid that's maybe 20 years old and has been on the streets for a few years and is ready to get off and ready to make some some real changes in their life that's who we're looking for and the the referrals will come through dry bones. I see, because that's got to be a challenge. Holy cow! Yeah, that's part of what makes this uh, project unique is the partnership. Dry bones is earning the trust on the streets with these kids who don't have a lot of trust for adults or authority. Most of them are running from a situation, a family situation that was abusive, or they got kicked out of. So their level of trust with authority and adults is very low. If we were to just hang our shingle and say, come come live in our transitional program, it probably wouldn't be very successful. But because Dry Bones builds that relationship yeah, on right, the streets, right. um, we'll be able to, I believe, um, start with some trust. Well, you talk about trust, which is obviously the key here, but talk about some of the daily challenges these young people face that friends that are listening now probably have no clue. Mm. I mean, they have come from great families and the kids are all great, but it's not always that way, is it? No, it's not. I mean, these kids, most of them are fleeing from something. Um, Most of them are leaving for a good reason, Um, being sexually abused at home, uh, physically abused, malnutrition, Estimates are 60 to 70% of the homeless street youth have come from the foster care system. Either they're running away from a foster placement or they've aged out and they have no real resources to help them uh, make that transition into adulthood. So many of them end up on the streets and they tend to cluster in groups uh, for... uh, relationship issues for protection on the streets they tend to run in packs and protect each other is it just like it's their family sure they're they're in survival mode and so much like a family uh within these packs um some will take the role of the mother some the father tend to be the older and then there's you know quote brothers and sisters and cousins and they they tend to look out for each other and pool their resources just to get by. Hard to believe. So how is Providence Network uniquely experienced and equipped to respond to this crisis we're talking about? Well, we believe because we treat the issue holistically, uh, which means when we bring a resident in, part of what we do is we're case managers. So we make sure they get hooked up with mental health services, medical services, job training, education, life skills. But part of what sets us apart is that relational piece where our staff are living in the home with the resident. And we feel like many um, of these young residents will have never experienced um, true love and acceptance at the same time, healthy accountability for them pursuing their goals. Plus adults that stay with them all along the pathway to a changed life. Yes. I'm sure these staff members are there all the time. They're not coming and going. No, we have a remarkable staff, uh, their dedication to what they do. I mean, picture our uh, co-directors of Silver Lining House that's launching here pretty soon. It's a retirement age couple. 
and they have decided at this phase of life, they've decided to live in a transitional home with street youth. So that kind of dedication and calling is really part of what sets our staff apart in the work they do. On how unique for these homeless to be a, connected with a family like that. And probably they've raised their own kids. Right. They kind of know how it is or how it's supposed to be. Yes. And I'll bet they probably in, in the beginning when the homeless come in, they don't get a lot of respect, but I'll bet they get a lot of respect pretty quick. Yes. This adult couple you're going to have in there, Silver Lining House. Yeah, they're, they're kind of, um, <laughs> they're sage and they're, 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 they're wise and, and they're not easily thrown. Um, and I think that's, that's a trait that's important in this line of work. Well, it helps build that confidence sure. that who are these people? Yeah. <laughs> and why yeah. are they here? Yeah. What are they going to do for me? We're talking to Derek Kirkadall, who's the executive director of Providence Network, and they deal with the uh, youth homeless problem here in Denver, have for 30 years, mainly uh, young adults. It's like 18 to 25, Derek mentioned. And there's a lot of them out there in the streets of Denver, and that's what they do at Providence House. Let's talk more about this new home. Uh, silver lining over there at Fourth and Broadway. How is that different from your other? You mentioned you had five transitional homes in the in the metro area. Yes, so we kind of have two levels of housing. We have what's called first step, which is two years transition, get back on your feet, and then we have next step, which is apartment complexes throughout the city. Where after those two years, you can go move into your own apartment and continue your journey towards sobriety. Uh, employment and really supporting each other in a community. So this new home is named Silver Lining and uh, we'd like to thank Silver Lining Foundation, which is a local family foundation that really raised the seed money to uh, get this project up and running. So this, uh, our other first step homes cater to certain subpopulations within the homeless community. So Providence House specializes on those men and women, single men and women who are overcoming addictions. I see. Our Joy House specifically serves moms who are escaping domestic violence with their children. Silver Lining House, our new home that's launching, is catered is going to cater to homeless street youth, 18 to 25. And so it's going to be, the program will be unique in the way it caters and is specialized towards someone in their early 20s. Um, most of our other homes are working with older adults. And so we believe we're going to have to tweak this program to fit the needs of this younger population. So the residents in each of these homes are pretty much on the same path. Correct. Yes, it's it's to move from a survival mentality to a thriving uh, existence. And what kind of training do the staff members have at each one of these homes to qualify to help mm -hmm. them down this path? We have a pretty diverse pool of staff. Uh, we have everything from um, people that have earned a master's degree in counseling and have a certified addictions uh, counseling certificates all the way to um, staff that have been through our program themselves and have come out on the other side and um, wanted to give back. So a pretty diverse group. The training we have is, is um, you know, real similar to f for counselors and addictions counselors, um, always you know, keeping up on 
best practices in those areas. And what kind of a lifestyle do they have, the staff members, so they can live mm-hmm. with the residents? I mean, do they have other their own family? I mean, do they are they part of that program then too? Yeah, it's it's real unique. It's we're trying to recreate family within the home. Sure. So our staff, uh, they do have times they can be off duty. Uh, they can you know take a couple days a week off, uh, and they do have families of their own. We um, have, I think, right now we have four married couples, and two of them have children. Wow. Uh, that are living in the homes, so it is very unique. And the best way to describe our staff is they're, they're like missionaries. They're, they're almost like Mother Teresa in that they're living <laughs> yeah. in the community and seeing themselves living next, uh, next to residents as a relationship that is transformative on both sides, on right. both sides. Some of the stories that come out must be amazing mm. of some of the residents that have been there, the successes. And sure. I bet you've had some failures. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, defining success and failure is, is kind of hard to do in this business that we're in. Right. Um, you know, certainly relapse is uh, prevalent, but that's true in any kind of recovery program. Sure is. And, you know, sometimes that first relapse helps uh, that second round of programming. Some of our greatest quote, success stories are people that have been through the program three or four times. Sometimes it takes that many times before it'll actually stick. Do you allow them back in your program then? Or do you say, well, it didn't work here. Maybe you should try there. Well, we do both. Um, If somebody relapses uh, and and they need some intensive kind of inpatient help, we'll say, why don't you go for 30 days and we'll hold your bed for you if you want to come back. We really feel like that grace sure. um, to have people back is very important, an important value to our program. And so do you have like a graduation ceremony? I, yeah. I bet that happens. Yeah, you? sure. Yeah. I mean, we we celebrate a lot at Providence Network. And when, when uh, our residents have a success, we overdo it. <laughs> well, you should. Yeah, <laughs> you know, life is short, and why not celebrate? Many of our residents have not had healthy models of celebrating in their lives, so we try to do that with them. Do you find a lot of the graduates give back? Yes, definitely. In, in fact, um, when our graduates um, <clears throat> end their two-year program, many of them stay involved. They become mentors. Um, they become accountability partners with many of our residents. Um, they really see our program as the thing that saved their lives, so they're very grateful. And they don't forget. No. 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 At all. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. And you're talking about the Silver Lining Home, because that's the newest one, and it's going to be opening soon for residents. Where do... I mean, that, I was in that house. There was a lot of reconstruction. I mean, a lot of the old amenities of this old mansion in Denver are still there. Well, that house had to be built in the 1800s. Yeah, 1896. No doubt. But yet, it's so updated. Where does all that mm. come from? Is that all one group paying for it, or are there yeah. a lot of volunteers? Well, first, I just want to thank you, Murphy, for coming to that house for me. It was great to meet you there. And well. Uh, you're not just a local celebrity behind a microphone, but you actually came out into the community and, and saw with your, 
your own eyes what uh, groups like us are doing. So I just want to thank you for being part of the community that way. As far as the house, um, it is a very unique building, and um, we spent a lot of money on it and a lot of money to renovate it. We had a general contractor, Icoda, uh, do the work. And really the challenge was how do we take this old, beautiful, majestic, historical home and make it appropriate for 16 teenagers or early 20s uh, to live in. And so it needed a lot of updating. And what we've done, we believe, is turned it into really a first-class home. And that was important to us. We probably could have built um, some kind of facility or found some old warehouse to, to renovate. But this place, when you walk in the doors, you feel like a family lives here. Oh, absolutely. You, you feel like yeah. this is a real home. And that's important to the culture of the program and the project. We want these kids to walk in and feel like they're valued, they have dignity, and they're part of a family that is welcoming them. Oh, I felt that. And you know, and we were there with a lot of fair amount of people. There had to be a couple hundred people in and out that whole day. So we felt it that way, and it was an open house to promote it. But I would imagine once all that clears out, it's just the staff and these homeless people walk in there, they're going to go, wow, yeah, this is not what we're used to. I, I think you're right. And that's got to give them peace of mind immediately, I would yes. think. I don't know that, but I would think it would work that way. Am I wrong? No, I mean, that. The, all of our properties have that feel. Again, we, we could have gone probably cheaper and – and housed people, but we're really trying to impart this feeling of a family uh, in through what we do. So what, what's the future? And oh, I meant to ask a little earlier, are there other Providence networks anywhere else but what you have here in Colorado? Uh, there are some other organizations um, that have replicated at what we do. There's a program in Dallas that has we've had, um, we've consulted with and and there's a program in Toronto, Canada, oh, wow. that is replicating what we do. And it's this idea of having staff live in the homes with the residents um, that has been unique. And what's the future? What, what do you see down the road, mm. Derek? I mean, you've been there forever. Ten years. Ten years. Just celebrated my ten years. Well, congratulations on that. But and what is your vision as the executive director? Mm. Where would you like to head? Mm. Because maybe there's somebody out there listening right now that might help you get down that road. Well, like I said, I think we have a unique offering to the city, the way we approach homelessness. The challenge is is, it's expensive. Um, Oh, of course. What we saw. I mean, it was like, holy cow. Buying real estate, renovating real estate, and then uh, operating uh, our programs is not cheap. And so the part of the challenge is we're also 100% privately funded. So we rely on the generosity of the community, individuals, families, businesses to do what we do. And in the case of Silver Lining, we were able to raise uh, two thirds of what we needed, but we still now need another million dollars to complete the capital campaign for the silver lining house. So um, I believe our future is bright. I think we're at a time now where the need in the city is at an all time high. I think 
the community's recognizing it and the community's looking for organizations like us that are credible, have been around and have something unique to offer this social problem in the city. Yeah. And it's not to be ignored. I, I, I think people, it's not that they don't ignore it. They're not aware. And now here's their chance to get on board and really help a, a real situation here in our own community, maybe in their neighborhood. They don't even know it. Yes. And it's going on right now for sure. Yes. So you have no government subsidies, no tax dollars are going to this, any grants or anything like that? It's just people that are stepping up. Well, we do have grants from private foundations okay. and that we're very grateful for. Um, but that's right. We're doing this with private money. And, and I think the investment, the return on the investment is very high. If you consider that in the city of Denver, city county of Denver, the public cost, so the cost to taxpayers for a chronically homeless person is around $45,000 a year. Is that right? Yeah. When you add up all of the detox costs, emergency room, drug court, criminal costs, it averages 45000 a year. To support one resident through a year of services at Providence Network, it's $6,000 a year. So a lot cheaper. Big difference. Yeah. And what difference. we're providing are services that are that are ha- helping people overcome uh, rooted problems rather than just staying on the streets. And it seems a little more personal what you're doing with Providence Network. Absolutely. That's, that's our approach. Nothing against other organizations out there trying to help, but what I've seen and read and heard it seems really one-on-one. It really seems personal. Yeah, and, and, and that's our niche. We're, we have partnerships with all the players in town, and we all kind of fulfill a different niche in the community. And I think that's part of what makes Denver unique as well, is that um, we do play well together, I think, and um, support each other in our partnerships. Do you work directly with the city itself? Are there some of the organizations within the structure of the city or even the state where they reach out to you and sure, say, hey, sure. we'd like to help you. We need some help too. Yes. We uh, are constantly in communication with officials from city and county of Denver. That is a great partnership. Yeah. It really is. Well, you've done a great job there, Derek. I was impressed with what I saw, and I want people to be more aware and do you need volunteers? I mean, I know you need some money, but do you take volunteer help? Yes. I mean, if anybody's interested in finding out more about us, you can go to our website, providencenetwork.org. Uh, there's lots of information there, including uh, volunteer opportunities that we have coming up. And you can find out more about perhaps getting uh, your place of business involved or just a family donation, how to donate to Providence Network. Absolutely. Uh, Donations are tax deductible and donations over $250 are also uh, Colorado tax credit uh, donations, which is a double whammy. I was going to say you got the double dip there. Yes. Yes. (laughs) That's got to make you feel good. And I know you do a big fundraiser and I think it's coming up in, is it September? Yeah. Yeah. September. We'll have our annual fundraiser. you know, we're still kind of a growing organization even after 30 years, but our fundraising budget is small. We don't have uh, billboard advertisements or or radio commercials. Right, right. Uh, but what we do well is um, have a ha, have a event in the fall where it's about an hour and a half where we get up and tell stories about impact um, and the impact the Providence Network is having in the city and people's lives. 
Is there any stories before we wrap up here you can share or can you share? Are you allowed to talk mm-hmm. about your successes? Sure. I mean, we, we do take confidentiality seriously. So sure. I always use the, or I don't use uh, the real names. Um, but, you know, a typical story, everyone's story is different, but, but there are themes that run through many of them. And, and there was a woman, Marcy, um, at Joy House, and she for years had been putting up with abuse from her boyfriend and he um, would beat her and she would take it. But the day that he laid his hand on her son, oh. three-year-old son, she said, I got to get out of here. And so he left to go get a pack of cigarettes at 7-Eleven. So she had about five minutes. She grabbed a, a, a trash bag and stuffed it with everything she could. And wow. she and her son fled uh, the apartment. Uh, they went to a local women's shelter where they got a few safe nights and then she was looking for some transitional program. That's when she landed at Joy House and that was um, three years ago and now she's living in one of our apartments in the city working and her son has been going to the same elementary school for two years now, which is a big sign of stability and success for them. Well, congratulations on that. That's got to make you feel good. Thanks. It's Well, before we wrap up, give us a little more information in the website, if you want to volunteer, if you'd like to donate to the cause. and Yes. I, I mean, obviously, our biggest need is, is for uh, financial donations. And so the way to do that is through our website, providencenetwork.org, where, again, also you can get information about volunteering opportunities. Very so, good. Derek Kirkendall, Executive Director of Providence Network, doing some great work right here in the city of Denver, and I could uh, use your help as well, so please reach out. And Hey, Derek, thanks for coming in. Thanks, Murphy. Have a great day. And you as well. Thank you for listening to Mile High Magazine. Again, I'm Murphy Houston, and we'll talk to you all again next week right here. Now, we continue with Mile High Magazine. Here's your host, Adam Morgan. Born 1946 to 1964, the family building of men returning home from World War II, the boomer generation in their journey through American life have been the nation's change generation. Civil rights, feminism, overt racism, sexism, and other isms have received the special makeover treatment driven by the boomers. Greetings again. I'm Adam Morgan. Now aging into being America's largest generation of older, mature adults, the boomers are not yet finished with change. On their present radar screen is changing ageism in society, revising America's misperceptions and treatment of senior adults. It's too long overdue. Changing the Narrative in Colorado is one of the leading groups in the forefront of eliminating ageism in America. Boomers Leading Change is an organization which includes translating change into action among their activities and outreaches. We do learn more from Phil Nash, Executive Director of Boomers Leading Change and Changing the Narrative in Colorado Initiative Manager, Janine Vandenberg. I guess, Janine, where we need to start here is why do we need to rethink anything about the age of aging because, you know, we're all conditioned that 62 is early is as early as you can get Social Security and then 65 if you want to just go retire. You know, I mean, that's the way other generations have kind of rolled there. So why do boomers need to do it any differently? So, Adam, I think we can look at the people in this room and figure out that we're doing it differently, whether or not people want us to. 
Um, looking at your role, looking at Phil Nash being head of Boomers Leading Change, my having taken on this new role with leading changing the narrative in Colorado, the reality is that most of us are living longer and healthier lives, and we just don't feel like checking out at age 62 or age 65. Those are just basically made-up numbers at a time when people live less long. So we're not going to check out, but, you know, aren't half of us conditioned to do something like that? There's a whole geriatric industry that's built up to, well, you retired 62. By the time you're 65, you got to give up your driver's license. Then you're looking at assisted living at 72. And uh, there's a nursing home that's, that's in your future by the time you're 77. It's already laid out there. Adam, I hate to even respond to that question because you're laying out all the stereotypes about older adults. So one of the things that we know is that, one, all of us, not just boomers, are living longer and healthier lives. And that is true, not just in Colorado, it's true across the United States, and it's true actually across the world. So we're living longer and healthier lives. And we also know, and a new study just came out from Stanford University, that most older adults uh, want purpose and meaning in their lives. And so the idea of just checking out when you have all of the strength and talent and experience seems a little bit absurd, not only for all of us who are aging, but also mm. for the community to not have access to the talent that's out there. The talent that's out there. That's one of the things, Phil, you harness at Boomer's Leading Change through your Encore Network, through your AmeriCorps, through your Action Academy. You're harnessing that. In, in, in which ways are you doing it, and what's the response? Yeah, well, uh, Adam, what we're seeing a lot of is uh, people who are nearing the end of their active uh, careers or have just ended the uh, their active careers coming to us and saying, you know, I left my job six months ago, and I am bored stiff. I thought I was going to be able to do all this uh, other stuff like golfing and spending more time with my grandkids, and I get to do some of that, but I am really, really bored, and I do not want to die in my rocking chair. Uh, so we get we see an awful lot of people who um, who come because they are really ready for a new challenge in life. Yeah. They feel healthy. They feel strong. Many people are in, uh, uh, we hear a lot about older adults who are in uh, uh, poor financial situation, but the vast majority are in better shape than any previous generation. Yeah. yeah. So uh, we are there to help people find meaning and purpose. And it's actually scientifically established that people who feel a sense of meaning and purpose later mm -hmm. in life live 7.5 years longer than people who do not see meaning and purpose in their lives. Really? Yeah, this is new. This is research that's been done at Yale uh, and at, uh, uh, I believe it was Rush University Medical School, uh, cited by uh, Dr. Paul Irving of the Milken Institute on Aging. Yeah. Uh, but uh, we also see uh, research that shows that people are, uh, their minds, if they're active and engaged in purpose and meaning, are at less risk for uh, dementia and Alzheimer's. So we think that we are not just performing a service for society by mobilizing older adults, but volunteerism, the act of doing service, is itself an intervention to help older adults stay healthy and act healthy for a longer period of time, mentally and physically. Janine, what Phil was saying there, if you want that seven and a half years and you start 
being more active and supportive of, of other people and volunteering, then you should also start to reshape your vision of yourself and what you should be doing at that same time period. That kind of works together. Or maybe the result of doing more stuff, as Phil is saying, helps you rethink of who you are and where you're at at the time. So unfortunately, uh, many people are stopped in some way from participating more fully in society because of persistent ageism. And one of the things that we know is most people in the general public have negative and inaccurate perceptions about older people and have ageist attitudes that prevent people from fully participating once they get older, once they hit 62, 65, whatever the magic number is. And so, one, we need more programs like Boomers Leading Change, but two, we need to shift public thinking about what aging means, and, and we need to shift public thinking and increase understanding that ageism is out there, and it really prevents the contributions that all of us could make as we get older. And that's important. It's not just important to older people. It's important to all of us. The one thing that we all have in common, your listeners, those of us in this room, is today is the oldest we've ever been, and it's the youngest we'll ever be. So we're all headed in one direction, right? We're all getting older. So if we can shift our thinking about what it means to get older, what you can contribute as you get older, we're all going to be better off, and community is going to be better off. I saw a television commercial that's been playing, and uh, the service that they're offering is exercise and picking up older adults. And they're taking them to exercise, and they're taking them to eat, and they have this cheery look like, yeah, I can, I can lift my weights, I can do this, I can do, do that. And they're stereotypically looking like they're more 80, and then we put the label senior on it. Right. And then I mean, they put the label senior on it. And then in reality, we put the label senior on anything from 62 older who may not look like that or even act like that then. Right. And that's where the narrative gets confused and why it needs changing because the perception is that an 85-year-old that's showing they're getting picked up in the daycare van is the same as a 62-year-old that just walked out of an office. So we actually have um, a couple of narratives that are going on around aging. And it's important to know because one is actually the super senior. And the super senior is someone who looks tremendous, is in their 80s. They are hiking 14ers still every day. They're opening schools in Nepal. They're fostering 10 cats, and they're going to be on American Top Model, right? That's the super senior. So we kind of look at that, and sometimes people who are trying to change the narrative say, look at that person over there. They're doing great. And what that does is create a perception in people's mind. If you only exercise more, if you only saved more money, you too could be like that person. Yeah. And then we have the other, kind of on the other side, the image that you've just described of someone is of necessity as they get older, they're going into decline, they're deteriorating, they're depressed, they're lonely. And we, we know the reality of that um, is not true for most people. So what we collectively have to do is show people what the truth really is. And part Mm. of the way we need to do that is by changing our language and our own attitudes about how we talk about aging. Phil, does your Action Academy help with that? 
Our Action Academy is a way of engaging uh, older people in the social issues of the day. Our organization, Boomers Leading Change, is all about addressing the social determinants of health, which, uh, which is more than just uh, access to health care and health care itself. It's also about the barriers that many people face uh, in getting health care, such as transportation to the doctor's office or having enough money to buy your prescriptions and so forth. So we actually train people to go out and work with all age groups in 40 different nonprofit organizations to help uh, what are called medically underserved people and economically marginalized people to overcome those barriers to, to living their healthiest lives. Back to the question about the Action Academy, not everybody is into direct service. Some people actually want to go out and get engaged in changing the system. Yeah, uh, we, we have people that, uh, that go out and spend some time doing direct service and they see the same problems happening over and over and over again like what people who can't get to the can't get to the doctor's office okay. because they they don't have transportation well why don't they have transportation because the bus the bus route doesn't go where these people where they live need to go. yeah uh, where they need to go or in some cases when you have people who are coming to this country as immigrants or refugees and that's groups some of the groups that we work with sure uh, deal with immigrants and refugees they don't even know what an appointment is because wherever they came from, they would just go to stand in line in a clinic once every two weeks. And if they got seen, they got seen or or not. Yeah. Uh, so coming to the United States where a doctor or nurse or whatever says you need to come to this appointment at 10 o'clock, uh, it's a concept that is just foreign to them. So some of our people just help people understand what our system is like and why it's important to follow up with these uh, uh, with a medical appointment. And that's just one example. Uh, mental health issues are, are, are also an enormously uh, uh, big challenge. So the Action Academy is, a, is to engage people in efforts to change the system, like transportation, like housing, like prescription drug costs, sure. like uh, uh, is focusing on the op opioid epidemic. Did you realize that in the last year we had more Coloradans die of overdoses than any other time in our history? Nearly a thousand people. Um, and there is a group called the Harm Reduction Center that is um, that we're working with to come and make a presentation about uh -huh. how we could stop this from happening. Um, so uh, we are hoping that people will turn out and uh, and get involved in in that issue and see if we can save more lives yeah, uh, yeah, sure. around some initiatives to uh, to make it safer for people who are using opioids to just stay safe. Yeah, sure, Janine. A lot of our, at least I think, a lot of our uh, ageism grows out of workplaces. And some companies will say, well, Adam, you've just gotten too old now. You can't do this anymore. And you're sitting there actually doing it. But because I had this birthday, <laughs> tell me I can't do it anymore. Won't a lot of the, the uh, direct effort to change ageism have to start in places like the workplace where the perception is that if you're too old, you can't do it anymore? So we definitely want to change public perception overall because, after all, people who are in workplace are members of the public. And I'll give you an example this morning. So I'm actually looking for a co-working space for myself 
and I found this really interesting looking thing online in Lodo. Yeah. And right on the front of the website, it said, for millennials, by millennials. And I guess, and so it was a really clear message. Well, I guess that one is not for me. One of the things that we're trying to work on in changing the narrative is to think about the different points that employment discrimination occurs. Yeah. So one of the things, I mean, we know, and it's a fact that people age 55 and older have a much harder time getting employed or reemployed if they've left the workforce voluntarily or involuntarily. Um, but we also know that there's this really interesting online application thing where you have to put your high school graduation date. And really, at what really? point does a high school graduation date really have relevance, right, to whether to your competency to do the job? So there's a big push afoot to make sure that things are more competency-based, that to get rid of things like requiring high school or college graduation date on application. So we think a lot is going to um, end up benefiting people in the workforce. I think the other opportunity that we have in Metro Denver and Colorado right now is because there is a talent shortage that people are starting to see, uh, wow, those yeah. people age 55 plus are starting to look kind of good um, because they can already do something. They've got the skills. And so we've got to leverage the opportunity that we have right now um, because there is a talent shortage in our geographic area uh, to go ahead and push the narrative a bit. One of the things in, in saying that, I was at a meeting of, of just about, about a year, year and a half ago and a couple of gentlemen came in late. We're all on the same board. And they said, pardon us, uh, we, we had a, a seminar on how to manage millennials. And uh, it ran over. And so some of us said, well, millennials couldn't be that hard to manage. And they said, oh, if you want to apply for a job at our company, we'll take you. Boomers show up. Boomers have the experience. We're reliable and all those things. And so just thinking about what they said. If we're able to communicate that to other boomers and people that are 62 plus thinking that you that they've aged out and they have it and those attributes are there, right. that'll go a long way to help change that narrative. I think you're exactly right. But one of the things I don't want to do is yeah. – and one of the things that's really popular out there right now is pitting boomers versus millennials. Now, personally, I have two millennial daughters who have incredible work ethic. So I think the idea of millennials not having good work ethic um, uh -huh. is a little odd. Um, so I don't think it helps us to pit one against the other, but I do think it serves us really well to call out things that boomers are really good at. And one of the things that we know, and there's great research on that, that the best workforces have a mix of generations so that, you know, boomers can provide the mentoring that often younger people want in the workforce. And younger people can take some of the ideas that boomers have and run with it. So there's real opportunity when companies figure out how to make both generations work together. Is that the same thing to both of you, the sports industry does and professional sports, having some veterans around with the young draftees at the same time? I'm not very qualified to talk about sports, Adam. I'm sorry. I'm not a sports fan. Oh, darn. <laughs> but you know, new Broncos, when they come in, and the other Broncos have been there for 10 years, and they yeah. try to get a balance. And so I think what you're talking about is taking that same type of model and applying it to other industries. You get well, the same thing done. Exactly. And one of the things that uh, we've learned um, is actually having multi-generational programs, whether it's multi-generational community centers, some of the volunteers from Boomers Leading Change, for example, working with younger children, tutoring younger children or that kind of thing, um, intergenerational programs 
go a long, long way in shifting people's thinking about what it means to get older mm-hmm. because there is that interaction among generations. So I'm all for intergenerational mentoring, and we're totally encouraging that as part of changing the narrative. I think the Encore Network, I know nationally they have an outreach called Gen the Gen, an intergenerational that she's speaking about. Yeah. And the Encore, Colorado Encore Network is something that um, – uh, boomers leading change also not incubates, but that's a part of your your yeah. your ser- yeah, ser- service program. and programs as well. Yeah, so uh, I, I want to say something about the Gen to Gen program. We very much want to become part of that national movement, and we are, um, uh, as I said, uh, Boomers Leading Change currently works in the area of social determinants of health. Yeah. But we also think that there is an enormous interest on the part of um, people 50 and 50 plus to get involved with young children. And we are uh, literally in the, in the process right now of raising money to, um, to do a feasibility study about the possibilities of engaging older adults mm-hmm. with, uh, with the early childhood um, field. Um, because the early childhood field here in Colorado, and I think nationally, is uh, is struggling with uh, human resource issues. Really? And uh, yeah, there's it's a it's a lot of turnover in the early childhood field, um, and a lot of uh, a lot of burnout and so forth. So we think that there is a potential there for uh, for older adults to play some kind of auxiliary role to make the early childhood um, infrastructure in Colorado stronger. Mm-hmm. And we would like to be the conduit for bringing older adults to the early childhood field so sure. that, and we just don't know how to quite how to do that yet, but are looking for the resources to do the research so that we can do it right. Janine, it really comes down to, and Phil, to uh, both of you, it really comes down to what the individual perceives of themselves or if they can decide, um, this is what I need to do so I can show some change or I can, I can do it differently. What do you say to them? Uh, do you tell them to look at one thing about yourself and, and, and change it? or Because it, it, it's going to come down to that. So I'm going to let Phil talk about kind of the individual change. What we're trying to do with changing the narrative, which is funded in Colorado by both um, Next 50 Initiative and Rose Community Foundation. Sure is to look at more of a collective and a systems approach at this and recognize that even if each of the three of us in this room look at ourselves as individuals, when we go out into society, if we are facing ageist attitudes, negative stereotypes, assumptions that we can't learn, assumptions that we are digitally incompetent, and I'm looking at you, Adam, as you're working with this very complicated kind of radio and computer system, uh, a demonstration that getting older does not have to mean being digitally incompetent. If we work as individuals, but we go into a society that is being ageist, we're facing all kind of barriers. So I think while Boomers Leading Change is working a lot with individuals and encouraging them to kind of follow their path, and Phil can talk more about that, what we're trying to do in changing the narrative is really changing the societal conditions so that when individuals step out, they're stepping out into uh, a society and a community that's more favorable of the contributions they can make. And got some support there when they step out there. Right, right. They're not doing it solo. Yeah, you know— Adam, earlier in this conversation, you were talking about uh, the systems out there that are promoting uh, a particular view of uh, of aging. Yeah. Um, 
I was at a conference recently, and somebody stood up and made a comment that really crystallized everything for me. Sure. All of the emphasis on aging that so many of us have ever gotten is about two things, saving money and staying healthy. And it's about so much more. Purpose and meaning, it's about, uh, you know, reinventing yourself, and it's about actually uh, something I call internalized ageism. If you grow up not liking older people or not wanting to be around older people, and then 30 years later you realize, oh, what the heck, now I are now one. I am one, yeah. Yeah, uh, you've internalized this. The, you, you don't like yourself. You might not like yourself. Uh, as an older person. And that is extremely unhealthy. The, um, there's a vested interest in our society and in our economy in having us age in a certain way. Um, and it's around health care. It's around saving for retirement. And so far, until recent years, not much else. Yeah. And I think that that is, uh, uh, it, it is, think about the monumental waste of human talent that is due to the fact that people have internalized some beliefs about themselves that they are no longer worthy from age 62 or 65 on. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a myth. This is all going to change one way or the other. We can either get in front of it and make this change, or we can let the change happen to us uh, in, a, in a very passive way, which won't be very pretty. Getting on top of this means uh, helping more people understand as they're entering their later, uh, the, the, the third stage of life or whatever you want to call it, that there is boundless potential for uh, personal change and for social change. And often it just is stopping paying attention to those very ageist birthday cards you start getting when you're 40. Uh, and, uh, oh, yeah. You go look at those and you just, you just, it just makes me weep to think that this is, this is, this is what people think is funny. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, it's tragic to, to think about all the potential that is wasted because of people thinking less of themselves because society has always thought less of older people. Janine, does some of this change of perspective regarding ageism? You're going to have to do some systemic work with younger people. And the reason why I say that is that in in the entertainment business, for example, we hear all the time how, especially in movies, how men can work until they're, right. you know, until they're Methuselah. But women, as soon as they hit 28, that's it. You know, nobody wants to see them again. And it says to me, we got to start with some younger people systemically and starting to to reposition their thinking early. Um, so I think it's really funny that you mentioned this right now. I was watching the royal wedding last week, and Meghan Markle is one of the people who was calling out at the age of 36 the fact that she was being discriminated against for being an older actress, which, you know, <laughs> from the perspective of being older than that seemed a little bit bizarre. But you're exactly right. It's, um, it's so embedded in the industry. And as Phil said, it's so embedded in our society. A friend of mine uh, about a year ago emailed me this um, notice that she had received from her child's kindergarten. And it was a dress up as an old person day. And it was literally dress up as an old person. It was person literally, day. it was encouraging people to dress up. And it was like 100 days in school. And evidently, this is a thing. But, you know, dress up, wear baggy clothes, put a gray wig on, have a walker, you know. 
and <laughs> really? have have fun with it. So when Phil talks about how we all end up internalizing ageism ourselves, we're exposed to messages from the time we're really young children. So one of the things we need to shift everyone's perception and we need to let, for example, whoever came up with this idea of let's have a 100-day old day and have students dress up as old people – we need to get rid of stuff like that. And part of what we're going to do in the narrative, we're calling it calling in ageism instead of calling out ageism. Yeah. We're going to try to gently educate people. This is probably not a good idea to reinforce a negative stereotype around older people by having this holiday of, you know, dress up in a way that is, you know, wear big glasses, wear baggy clothes, <laughs> limp, and all of that kind of thing. Oh, so, I wish I had known about that day. I will send you. I would have walked in with a nice three-piece suit and says, how does 70 look to you now? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But that's just, um, yeah, so um, there are so many ways that that gets perpetuated all the time. So when I'm thinking of the messaging that we're doing and who we're talking to, I'm not thinking we're only talking to older adults. I'm not thinking we're just talking to younger adults. I think we're talking to people of all ages about here's what it means to age. We all are going to live longer and healthier lives. This is not just baby boomers. We know people behind us, the generation behind that, they're all going to live longer and healthier lives. So we're all going to have this extra time. And if we want to do well as a society, we need to be figuring out how do we make the most of that Mm -hmm. and how do we promote it and celebrate it and not, you know, put people out on a shelf. In the few moments we have left, uh, Phil, can people, I guess, connect with others with similar thinking by being a part of the Colorado Encore Network? Yeah, well, yeah. Uh, first of all, go to our website, boomersleadingchange.org, and sign up for our mailings. We send out a regular uh, newsletter called The Boom Box that announces our activities. And the Colorado, Enco- the Colorado Encore Network is a really good place for people to come who are exploring their options for uh, what they want to do when they have uh, uh, more time on their hands than, you know, working in a full-time career. Another thing that we uh, that I, I would love to encourage uh, your listeners to think about is our AmeriCorps Encore program. Boomers Leading Change runs the only AmeriCorps Encore program in Colorado, and that's for people 55 and older to commit to either 10 hours a week or 20 hours a week of service. And it's stipended service. We actually pay people. It's not a lot of money. But uh, we actually pay people uh, to go out to get some training and to go out and um, do some work in the community uh, for a year. It's a year-long commitment. And it is a way of uh, serving your community and serving your country. Sure, uh, sure. It's a, it's a national program uh, that uh, goes back to the Johnson administration. That's something that they could become involved in. And we would love to talk to anybody who's interested because oh. we're recruiting right now. Janine, you're going to get the last word here. Fantastic. I'm, I'm looking at myself in the mirror. What one thing could you tell me I need to do to... Uh, help change the ageism perspective or just myself so that I reflect a more current, a more fair, a better America in that area? So I think all of us need to recognize that aging is something normal that we all experience and that we are all doing. And if you are so inclined or any of your listeners are so inclined to join the fight to end ageism, what we um, you can go to our website, changing the narrative co 
coforcolorado.org, and there are lots of ways to get involved. There will be tips on what you can do individually. There are tips on what you can talk to friends about, mm-hmm. and there are tips that you, of how you talk to someone when they say, oh, I'm having a senior moment, and what you're going to do is remind them that they lost their keys when they were in their 20s. So it's about them <laughs> losing their keys. It has nothing to do with aging. Uh, yes, we have done that. Janine Vandenberg and Phil Nash, thank you both for bringing such an insightful conversation to us on changing the perspective of aging. And I'm already feeling like I'm in my 30s again. Adam, <laughs> Adam, thank you. No, you're wonderful at your age. We sincerely thank Janine Vandenberg of Changing the Narrative in Colorado and Phil Nash, Executive Director of Boomers Leading Change, for being our guest on this edition. Again, you can get involved with changing ageism or just expanding your post-career years activities involvements by joining them. Again, they're both online at boomersleadingchange.org and changingthenarrativecocolorado.org. I'm Adam Morgan. Do keep in touch, stay in your game, and we thank you for sharing a few moments of your weekend with us. You have been listening to Mile High Magazine, a look at the issues and people shaping Colorado, presented by the Public Affairs Department of Bonneville, Denver. If you have a suggestion for a future program or a question, please send an email to publicaffairs at bonneville.com. Thanks for listening to Mile High Magazine.